I want to talk with you more now about a holy nation, which nation you are. If you are in Christ, you are a member, you are a citizen of a holy nation. We are taking our text from 1 Peter 2, 9, 10, and let me just refresh your memory of that. 1 Peter 2, 9, 10 reads this way. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. End quote. Now, what's astonishing about that text is that it is written to primarily Gentile converts. And it's using language that is historically, in redemptive history, uh, assigned uh, only to Israel, the nation of Israel, ethnic Israel, and which turned out to be unfaithful Israel, an apostate nation. And so... There, there is this Christian community now within Asia Minor that is coming under persecution from not only the pagan uh, Greco-Roman culture and its uh, pagan temples and, and priests, but also the Jewish community and its synagogue network. Because this new Christian community to whom Peter is writing uh, are standouts. They, they don't fit within either the pagan culture or or this apostate Jewish culture. And because they stand out, they are beginning to experience persecution uh, for many reasons. First of all, the emperor worship among the pagans who uh, declared that Caesar was Lord and Savior. And to not do that, you were considered not only an atheist, but you were considered um, a threat, treasonous to the, the, the state. And, of course, the Jewish culture was very jealous of the progress that Christianity was making, the preaching of the gospel was making, and sought to follow Paul and the apostles around, persecuting them, and also persecuting afterward any churches that were established in the name of Jesus. So this new community within Asia Minor is beginning to come under severe persecution. They are a community of people gathered who um, love one another, who worship together, who serve uh, believer and unbeliever with works of mercy, as the early Christians certainly did. And they are being persecuted because they don't have, uh, they don't even, aren't considered even a true religion. And one of the reasons they don't, aren't considered a true religion is because they don't have a temple. They don't have an altar. They don't have a sanctuary. They don't have a priest. And so how can you be a religion in the ancient world and not have those things? So these early Christians do feel a little alienated, no doubt, do feel a little dis disconcerned concerned about their identity and their purpose and their hope. And this is why uh, Peter is telling them that in verse 4, as you come to him, the living stone, 
rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And not only that, he then drops down to our text in verse 9 and tells him, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, and the people of God. So while this early Christian community may stand out because of their absence of a temple, their absence of an altar, their absence of priests, what Peter is telling them is that you bear the greater reality. You possess the greater reality. The pagans may have temples and they may they may have their priests and their and their altars and their sacrifices and all that goes with it, as do the Jews in Jerusalem. But those realities are faded now. As far as pagans, they are worshiping demons. As far as Jews, they are apostate. And the temple eventually in 70 AD will be sacked by the Romans and come under the full weight of God's judgment and destroyed. The temple is no longer a temple system, is no longer a credible or valid system. So Peter is assuring these Christians who feel... Um, a little put upon by their own identity to realize, and this is so precious, to realize that they are the people of God. They are living stones. They are themselves the temple. They are in themselves and among themselves a holy priesthood. And they're offering spiritual sacrifices which are acceptable to God, which, of course, the pagan sacrifices are not, nor are those being offered in Jerusalem at the temple. So these are sacrifices of service, sacrifices of doing good, sacrifices of praise that are acceptable now to God, where the pagan and the Jewish sacrifices are not. So this is so important to you today, especially if you are presently without uh, a church affiliation. If, if you've come to the point where you've realized, I can't do this anymore, I can't, I can't be a part of this business model, I can't be a part of this uh, surface, superficial religion masquerading as Christianity, I can't be a part of this mega church anymore, what have you. Y you, have, you have perhaps begun to gather in groups of five or six or three or four or eight or ten and and, and you wonder where, where you stand before God. I want you to understand from this reading that this is where you stand. This is how God sees you as a, a little flock that you still possess. You don't need a institution. You don't need a denomination to be the church. You are the church by virtue of your union with Jesus Christ not by virtue of your membership roles in any organization or institution. And that's very much exactly where these first early Christians were to whom Peter is writing. Now, let me today, I just want to address the backdrop of this, the historic backdrop to, for this uh, for our text here in First Peter. And to do that, we need to turn to Matthew 21. Matthew 21. 
And let me give you a brief review then of the context for Matthew 21. This is the chapter in which Jesus is now closing out his ministry. He is coming into Jerusalem as the king. He is riding on a donkey. He is coming into Jerusalem, being hailed by the people, crying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, we read Matthew 21.10, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Well, of course, he was a prophet, but he was also a priest. He was also, in this setting, most importantly, God's king. He is coming into Jerusalem as the son of David, the long-awaited son of David, the Messiah, the king of Israel. And he comes with divine authority. So the setting that I just described, it would commonly be taught in uh, church tradition as Palm Sunday. This is Palm Sunday. Jesus riding into Jerusalem, victorious, with people crying, Hosanna to the highest. And what happens now between um, Palm Sunday and Good Friday is that Jesus doesn't just kick back and relax. He is here with a mission, a final mission. And that final mission, now please note, is to go into Jerusalem and with divine authority as God's appointed king to expose and overthrow and condemn God's enemies. And that begins by him beginning to come to the temple and overthrowing that temple system exposing it for the corruption that it is once again and then condemning it and that's where we pick up in this context in Matthew 21 when Jesus entered the temple courts and uh, drove out all who were buying and selling there this is verse 12 he overturned the tables of the money changers and the branches the benches of those selling doves quote it is written he said to them my house will be called the house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Jesus is owning this. He's coming with divine authority, and he's exposing and condemning and shutting down the temple system. Now, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, that will continue. That system will continue even after his death, resurrection, and ascension, even after the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost. But God's, the full weight of God's judgment will fall on 70 A.D. when the Roman general Titus will come into Jerusalem and level the city and level the temple so that as Jesus prophesied at one point, there will not be one stone left upon another. And so the blind and the lame come to him and he healed them while he's in Jerusalem. But then, of course, the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David. These leaders were indignant. And so Jesus tells them, have you never heard, have you never read 
from the lips of children and infants. You, Lord, have called forth your praise. This is God incarnate, folks. This is the eternal Son incarnate, the Holy Son of David, the King of Israel. And these chief priests and these elders are gathering now in their wicked, vile, apostate minds to oppose him. Now, let's, let me remind you that to be a king, to be a monarch, means that you represent the people. You are the personification of the nation. You are, in this case, Jesus is Israel. He is in the embodiment of all that Israel was intended to be. And these chief priests and these teachers of the law think they are. They think they are the pillar of righteousness. They think they are the ones who represent God and the voice of God to the people. And they treat Jesus with contempt. But their time is coming. In verse 18, early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to, the, up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, May you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree weathered. The fig tree is a symbol of Israel. Fruitless apostate Israel in this case. And this is simply a metaphor. This is Jesus using this illustration of his cursing that apostate, fruitless structure within Jerusalem that pretends to be the people of God, that pretends to be righteous and opposes him the only righteous Jew, the embodiment of Israel in himself. So the story goes on that Jesus enters the temple courts, and while he's teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you this authority? They are the authorities. In their mind, he has no authority. He has no rights. He has no credentials. Who does he think he is, this Nazarene from Galilee, to come here to Jerusalem and beginning to begin to condemn the temple system? Who does he think he is? And Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, whether... Where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask them, Why don't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. And that's a fact. They didn't know. They were completely oblivious to the work of God in John's ministry, and therefore oblivious to him as the forerunner of the Messiah. 
And then he said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. If they could not recognize the authority of God in John's ministry, they're not going to recognize the authority that Jesus has, the divinely appointed king of Israel. So then Jesus tells two very critical parables. He tells one, beginning with, What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work in today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. They had the light of Scripture. They had the light of the revelation given to Moses. But they were blind to that light. Light is only light to those who can see. Those who are blind, no matter how bright the light, still cannot see it. And they were blinded by their own sin, by their own wickedness, by their own apostate mind and heart. So Jesus then tells them another parable. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, <clears throat> dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. Very important phrase. To collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? asked Jesus of the chief priests and elders. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the share of the crop at harvest time. And then Jesus said these words, Have you never read in the scriptures, The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls 
will be crushed. Matthew tells us then, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. End quote. So Jesus has come into Jerusalem. He is the king. He's the divine anointed, divinely anointed king of Israel. He is the embodiment of Israel. He is Israel. He is the um, long-awaited seed of Abraham to whom Abraham was promised that his seed would come the redemption of humanity. And Jesus is now there. And he's exercising divine authority. He's telling the religious structure at Jerusalem, you are an apostate, failed den of robbers. He condemns and curses the system. He condemns and curses the apostate nation. He condemns and calls into question the very authority of the chief priests and the elders. He likens them to unfaithful sons who say they will be faithful and then are not. And then he likens the faithful to prostitutes and tax collectors who say at first they won't, but then do. They are entering the kingdom of heaven. And then he tells, of course, this last parable of the tenants. The wicked tenants who finally, after killing and stoning servants that were sent to collect the fruit, take the son, his own son, the owner's son, and kill him and throw him out of the vineyard. They want his inheritance. And this is the deal. Here we are. This is the this is the moment. The chief priests and the elders, they want the inheritance for themselves. They do want they don't want to share it with the Messiah. They don't see themselves as needing Jesus as their Messiah. But Jesus is the Son, and the inheritance rightly belongs to him. And he's not going to give it to them. In fact, he tells them, not only are you not getting the inheritance, I'm going to take the kingdom of God away from you and give it to a people who will produce its fruit. Now, the traditional translation for that would be give it to a nation who produces its fruit. And that nation will be not something you want to mess with. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. What Jesus is warning there is that he's taking the kingdom of God away from this apostate nation, this failed system, and he's soon to offer himself as an atonement for his people. Those being those who place their faith in him and are united to him by faith down the road. 
as the new people of God, the true Israel, because they are in Jesus, who is true Israel. This is why Paul can say in Galatians 3 that not only is Jesus the long-awaited seed of Abraham, through whom the promise of Abraham would be fulfilled, but everyone who believes in him, that have faith in him, who are united to him, are children of Abraham. So that's the historic background of the text in Peter. When Jesus told the chief priests and the elders, Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. This is the moment where the history of nations, this is the hinge upon which the history of nations swings. There is everything before this moment that Jesus said these words and everything afterwards. After this moment, the nations of the world, including ethnic but apostate Israel, are on one side of the column. And Jesus is saying that his people who are in him are the new nation of Israel, the true Israel. This is why Paul can say in Romans chapter 2 that those who are Jews who are, one, are ones inwardly, not outwardly, now, is it possible to be an outward Jew and be one inwardly? Of course. Is it possible that Jews can come to saving faith in Jesus Christ? Of course. But apart from saving faith in Jesus Christ, they will not make it. They will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So let's go back now. Jesus has said that the kingdom is going to be taken away from them and given to a people, a nation, that will um, bear the fruit thereof. I wanted to read Matthew 21 to you today so that you could see clearly that this verse in 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, is the fulfillment of what Jesus said in Matthew 21. Now, this is not replacement theory. If some of you have a dispensational background, where you've been taught that God has two plans, one for Israel, one for the church, one for earthly people, one for heavenly people, uh, and you've been raised or you've been taught that discredited new system of theology, you may be surprised by what I'm saying. You may be uncomfortable with what I'm saying. You may even be offended by what I'm saying. But what's offensive is a system of theology that detracts from Jesus and puts the emphasis back where he doesn't. God's heart is centered on his son. And Jesus came to save Israel, to save his people, and save them he did. In all of those, now, whether Jew or Gentile, this is the mystery that, Jesus, excuse me, that Paul speaks of in Ephesians chapter 2, that the great mystery is now revealed that God intends to graft in the Gentiles into, the, into his people and that Israel will be saved through 
his son so that in him there is peace. There is no, no longer two people. There is one. So that in him there is peace. He has broken down the walls, the barriers of, of, uh, of things against the Gentiles and made the two one. There is a new humanity in Jesus Christ. And you are part of that humanity. You are a holy nation. Now let me close with why this is very important to you. There's a lot of talk these days about Christian nations. There's a lot of talk about the United States being a Christian nation. What I'm warning you against and what I'm equipping you to do is counter that false narrative. The United States is a, is a wonderful place to live. It is, a, it is a blessing to be an American. Enjoy the freedoms that we enjoy. But the United States doesn't belong to the new age, the age to come, the kingdom age. The United States is a nation that belongs in this age, this present evil age which is coming to a close. And as much as a blessing as it is for us to live here in the United States, for those of you who do, it is not the kingdom of God. And it is not the nation to whom Jesus was referring when he said, I'm going to take the kingdom of God away from you and give it to a nation who will bear its fruit. What he was referring to there is the new nation the new Israel, the new people of God. Let me close now with just one quick reading, one more quick reading, one passage. From the end of Paul's letter to the Galatians. And that is this. Verse 14, chapter 6. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. We'll pick it up here next time. Because you heard a lot in Matthew 21 about that new nation that will bear fruit. And we want to talk about now, what does it mean to be a holy nation? What does it mean to be the Israel of God? What does it mean that, how does that affect our daily lives? How does it mean, what does it mean to us and how do we live as God's holy nation in this present age? So the next time we're together, we'll look closely at that too. And that'll give you some good answers and give you some, uh, equip you to give a good response to those who think today that to be a Christian is to be politically active and to use the ways and means of the world to accomplish Christian goals, which is not the plan. Until then, may the Lord bless you and strengthen you and preserve you in his grace. Amen.